nerving another. We are ready for Revelation 10, and um, you know, again I would stress that chapter divisions can be distracting, this is one that I think is somewhat, I think it's really important for us to remember what just was said in chapter 9, that in spite of all these warnings, they refused to repent. And we, we talked for a second about what you might think and what you might do if you were the Lord, <laughs> you know, in view of this. After all that you've done, try to bring the people to repentance, to try to warn them, and try to humble them. And now we'll have a chance to see what the Lord does. <laughs> uh, we kind of speculated on that, imagine that. But uh, chapter 10 will show us that. I believe chapter 10 is a unit. There are three basic events all tied together by the presence of the same figure that's involved with those three events. So I'd like for us to read the chapter as a whole. I think it basically makes one point, and uh, I think each of those three elements kind of goes together to make one point. So, would somebody read chapter 10? I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there would be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. In my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So, what? who is the figure that kind of uh, is involved with everything in this chapter? Strong angel. Yeah, the second strong angel of the book of Revelation. Where is he from? Heaven. So he's from the very presence of God. That's significant. Uh, where someone's from in the book does tell you a lot. You might glance at 11.7. There's a beast that comes out of the abyss. Uh, that shows you a lot about his character. So here's a, uh, a strong angel coming out of heaven. What does uh, this angel look like? Rainbow on his head, face as a fire, feet pillars of fire. Yeah, so kind of envision this uh, angel. Bright, gigantic. He's got one foot on the sea, the other foot on the land. So he's gigantic, stra- straddling the shore. And uh, he has a loud voice, like a lion roar. There are several things about this angel that remind you of the picture of Jesus. I, I don't necessarily think this angel is Jesus, but he has a lot of characteristics of, of Jesus. And uh, when, he, when, he, when, he, when he speaks... What happened in verses 3 and 4? What happened in 3? Seven peals of thunder. Yes, you had these seven peals of thunder and John began to... Well, why would he do that? He was told to. Yeah, that's what he's been doing all along. That was his commission. Everything that happens, write it down. So, dutifully, John is doing that. Um, except 
there's a voice out of heaven that says what? Do not write them. Seal these up. You're thinking, well, that's kind of odd. I mean, you know, okay, so, you know, you're not going to write them, so why go through all this? Well, while you're thinking about that one, look at the next thing that happens. What does the angel do? Yes, raises uh, his uh, right hand to heaven and swore this oath by God that what? No more delay, but rather the uh, mystery is completed. Uh, What God has said to the prophets uh, will come to pass, so no more delay. That's what the angel swears to. And then, what does the angel uh, have in his hand? He has a little book. And uh, what uh, what does John do? And? Eats it. <laughs> well, okay. It must not have been too big. Uh, what did it taste like? Bitter in his stomach is a hard you know, thing to digest. Even though it was sweet as honey to eat. Does that remind you of anybody, by the way? Ezekiel. Ezekiel did the same thing. He had a message that he was to devour, and he did, and it tasted like honey. And uh, in this particular case, when John eats the book, he's told, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So his eating the book was taking a message in of prophesying against these nations and kings and so forth. Now, I think when you see this chapter as a unit, and particularly when you see it in the light of the last two verses of chapter 9, this starts to make some sense. Why would there be no more delay? Because nobody would repent. Yeah, I mean, you know, is there any good reason to delay the outpouring of God's full wrath any longer? I don't think there is. If they were sort of repenting, or some of them had repented or whatever, maybe you would. But in this case, there's no reason for a delay. Now, I think that fits with what the first act and the last act of this chapter why not write the seven thunders? But why would he decide not to? Why would God not want these in the program? Would it portend what he was about to do to them? Mm, I don't know what it would do. Perhaps it would warn them about the judgment that was coming. It's what the uh, trumpets did. Or maybe a description of what was going to happen. Yeah, maybe. Can you see connected with there not being any delay? Too late late for the message, so why bother writing it down? Yeah, I think it's on the right track. I think maybe it'd be best to see the thunders as more parallel things to the to the trumpets, more judgments, more warnings, and basically he's not going to use that. There's more, no more delay. We're not going through another seven anything. It's time to execute the judgment. It's time to bring the wrath of God down on. You know, there's a time for some some thunders to wake people up, and there's a time that you know you're not getting any more wake up calls. There's no more delay. John, eat the book. Prophesy. It's time to bring the judgment down on these wicked men who refuse to repent. So I think we're seeing that there were other warnings God could have used, but he decides not to. We'll put put those back on the shelf. You know, I mean, there comes a time when, when God just doesn't warn anymore, when he doesn't go through anymore, you know, preliminary anything. There comes a time when... There's no more delay. Execute the judgment. Prophesy and get this thing over with. They're not repenting. Oh, 
That's what I see. I see this chapter as really just the, the outgrowth of their lack of repentance. Therefore, God won't send more thunders. He's going to send the absolute wrath down on these people. Comments and thoughts? Eric. I was just thinking, because we always look at it as uh, giving the wicked more time, but the, the opposite of that is you're giving the good people longer to be persecuted. And you're right. Said earlier, he'll be persecuted for 10 days, so he knew there was going to be a time he was going to cut it off. Yeah. You're right. Uh, that's a good point. I agree with that. And I wonder verse 7 that says he has declared these to the servants and prophets. Do we have record of those? Those be some of the prophets that wrote the scriptures? I think so. I think that this may relate even to um, some things that were written in Daniel. We're going to see in chapter 13 a lot of parallels, also chapter 17 with Daniel 7, where you see a persecution against the saints, a war against the saints. And you see God destroying the horn and the beast that was against the saints. So I really think that what you're seeing here in terms of God's judgment of the persecutors is parallel to the end of Daniel 7. And so that he is saying, you know, we're basically finishing those details that the prophets had spoken when the wrath comes down on the head of the persecutors of the Christians in the first century. Other comments and questions? Well, so that, to me, chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9 is just kind of the response to the first six trumpets. But what are we still looking for? Seventh trumpet. Now, what happened when we were looking for the seventh seal? Commercial. Commercial message. A word from our sponsors. Same thing's going to happen now. We are expecting the seventh trumpet to follow. It doesn't. It will, but not yet. So we've got uh, an interlude, and um, there are two basic scenes in this, just as there were two basic scenes in chapter 7. The sealing of the servants of God on the earth and the great multitude up in heaven. It's going to be two scenes here. And uh, so, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple will leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now this is a tough little two-verse section. One of the uh, harder things, I think, uh, that we've come to so far. And uh, it took me a while to uh, figure out what I think about it, and you don't have to agree with this. But, uh, let's see if we can understand the basic ideas, and then we'll try to interpret it a little bit. Um, he, John gets a measuring rod to do what with? Measure the temple, the altar, and the worshippers. There's a part that is not measured. What's that? Court. The courtyard that would be around the temple. Now, what happens to that unmeasured part? And what do they do with it? They trample it down for how long? 42 months. Now, there's just several things about this that are, you know, worth commenting on, and we just kind of kind of take this a step at a time. Um, but I think all of them will help us in understanding what this is about. Evidently, measuring protects because it's the unmeasured part that's trampled down by the Gentiles. The 42 months will come up four more times in the next three chapters. This one and the next two. It may not come up always as 42 months, but... but because it's uh, also described in terms of the number of days and years and things like that. Uh, We're in uh, Revelation 11, the first part of it. But you look at verse 3, 11.3, the witnesses prophesy in sackcloth for 1,260 days. Do 42 times 30 and you'll come up with 1,260 days. 
In 12.6, the woman's in the wilderness nourished for 1260 days. In 12.14, she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time, and that ultimately ends up being three and a half years. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to it. And then in 13.5, the beast blasphemes and has authority to act for 42 months. So the 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, I believe, is a time when the enemies assault God's people, and yet God's people are protected and provided for by the Lord. The 1260 days, 42 months will be followed by something that's significant, but I think during this period, God is taking care of his people, even though they're under attack, they're being trampled, or whatever. So, let's come back to the figure then. He's measuring the temple, but leaving out the outer court. So the temple's protected, the outer court's trampled. The concept of the temple. What is the temple in essence? Dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, what was that? It was a building on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. In the New Testament, what is the temple? Christians. I would agree with that. Um, Could we make that more specific if we needed to? What is the temple for us? We said Christians, but can you be more precise? Church? Yes, but can we be more precise? Our body. Can you be more precise than that? (laughs) Our heart. I think that's the point. I think God dwells in our heart. What's the courtyard around our heart? Our body. So what part does God protect? Us. What part gets persecuted? Which matters? Don't fear the one who can destroy your body, but the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. I think the idea of this is God is protecting the spirit, the soul, the heart of his people, even though during this 42 months, their bodies are getting trampled on. The seal... No, go, go back to chapter 7. I think we'll see a parallel a little bit. The sealing of the bondservants of God protected them in connection with the wrath of God being poured out. I think this measuring protects God's people in connection with the persecution that's coming, with the affliction. But what part does it protect? It really protects them. It doesn't protect the outer court, their body, that is persecuted during this period of time. So I think he's saying to God's people, you know, you're not going to be hurt, even though your outer court may be trampled. Now, like I say, there's other ways to look at this, and uh, you may have one of them. So, uh, comments and questions? I don't know. That's a really big stretch. Yeah? I have nothing else against them. I'm just like, it's... I see where you're going, but... Do you think... Do you think... Well, I don't think that's the question, but why not? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, I don't know what they would have understood or what they wouldn't. I'm not sure I'm so concerned about what every one of them would have understood. The question is, is that is that what they could have and should have understood from that? And I'd say, well, I think it's, you know... I think we've been able to see that from it. I don't think that's out of the question. I agree. That's a, that's. I mean, any way you look at this, it's a little bit, uh, you know, complicated. But fitting that in with that time period as being the period where Christians are persecuted but protected, which will depend a little bit on what we see in chapters 11, 12, and 13. But that's what I see in that time period, is a time of persecution yet protection then that makes that a little bit stronger. And the alternatives I don't like. 
I think I got more objections to any other thing that I can come up with or that other people have than this. So, but hey, when you see a stretch, you know, chalk that up to that may not be the right explanation. Either we need to see it more deeply, or we may be off track. Because a lot of times our mistakes are in the things that we feel like, eh, I have to work on that quite a bit to get it there. That may just be we haven't understood it yet. And that's certainly possible in this. Uh, I would not, uh, this is probably not the two verses I feel the most uh, confident about. Are there thoughts on them? Scott? Um, I was curious some of the other explanations that maybe you've heard of. I mean, I, I could somebody reading this and some of those congregations said, look, you've got some good people and some bad people in this place. Maybe the good people are the ones protected, maybe the bad people are the ones that are persecuted. Or typically the temples, the church, and the outer courts of the world. That's pretty common also. Kind of the same idea. Just not so convinced that fits. Yeah, but that's that's probably the more common slightly. I don't know. It's just a tough little figure, and there's not a whole lot to go on. It's got two verses. Um, perhaps also what he says in the next section will kind of confirm that. At least it would show that it's not in the wrong direction based upon the other half of this interlude. But Matt. Um, I was thinking about, thinking about one of the explanations that you gave that could be saying that it is, in fact, those who are wicked who are being persecuted in the outside court, whereas those who are righteous are being protected inside the, the measure, what's been measured by the measuring rod. And that at least has some precedent in what we've read already, how you know, the, those who suffer all these plagues are... Um, they're not protected, whereas the ones who have the God on their foreheads, they are protected. I mean, do you see any kind of parallel between those two? Maybe. Do you think the focus has shifted by that point to something else? Yes. I think here we're dealing with persecution, not judgment. I think the nations trampling them underfoot is their persecuting, not God's judgment. That's an interpretive thing. That wouldn't be required. But I mean, that might be the question about that. So, then, I know we haven't gotten to verse 5 yet, but verse 5, talking about anyone who wants to harm the witnesses, fire is going to devour, not, the fire is going to devour their enemies. So you'd have the idea of, it's the enemies who are the ones who are being punished versus... Yes, exactly. God is going to punish those who are trampling the outer court. The two witnesses represent God's people, and God's not letting them be killed during those 1260 days. He's continuing to preserve them, even though they're being persecuted. Tough passage. Chapters 10 and 11... For a long time, you know, I've studied Revelation quite a bit for quite a number of years. For a long time, they were just really, I just really struggled with them. You may think I still am, but they were some of the last chapters that I felt like I had, you know, come to at least what I think is a coherent understanding of. I know we haven't actually got there yet, but since mentioned it, you know, suddenly in verse 3, we've got two witnesses. Yes. And where did they come from? I mean, in the image, in the picture that John is seeing, it's like they're spoken of as almost as if John knows who these people are, but we haven't really seen them. I don't think. We haven't. I think this is a new been, picture. Yeah, or been identified. You know? Yeah. They're, they're, they just appear on the scene almost as if John knows who they are. No, he's going to explain who they are in four. I, I think I think the fact that in four he tells who they are indicates that they probably weren't known before. Okay. Yeah, Eric. Is there any significance to the fact that now John is actually doing something? He's not just a. Uh... He's done a few things before, like eating the book. Yeah. Right. And it seemed like there was something. Is there anything else he's done? Uh, uh... 
Maybe not. Uh-uh. A lot of writing. A lot of writing. <laughs> yeah, that may be all. I, can't, I was thinking there was something else, but I don't think there is. Yes? Um, I was just thinking about the the Old Testament passage of Zechariah 2, where we talk about what, there's, uh, the measuring rod, where Jerusalem is described as being uh, protected, where the, the measuring apparently is for the purpose of building a wall around Jerusalem. Now, it's not going to be any ordinary wall. Any, any ordinary wall, God is going to be the wall. And he tells him not to measure. He can't measure because it's going to be too big. Right. And, and then, but it seems like in the, in the following verses that those who are that the, those who are punished are those nations that have been plundering them. Those are the ones who get the persecution that the people inside that measuring uh, are protected from. Yeah, but but he doesn't measure them. The measuring is canceled because they can't me- can't measure. You don't need to measure. There won't be walls around it. God will be the wall. But it's too big. There's too many people you can't measure. It'll be it'll grow have multitudes of men and women. So the idea of the measuring there was for it to be cancelled to show that Jerusalem was too big to be measured. Uh, Eric. This may sound like a stupid question. Uh, in verse one, is he is he measuring to determine how large something is, or is he measuring to lay out the foundation of something? I think he's measuring to show the part protected. I mean, are, for instance, you can measure this room because it's already laid out, or you can measure how big this room would be. Is he measuring? I think he's measuring something that already exists. David. That's what I think. Is it you had a pretty extensive vision of yes. measurements, including the temple, right? Yes, he did. And that was the point of that measurement. That this is God's. This is for God's people. Anyone who is not God's people cannot enter. And, and I wonder if there's some of that idea. That this is, I mean, whatever the, the place may be, this is God's place where God's people can have refuge. Yeah, maybe so. That'll make you think. Let's work on the next one a little while. This one at least is longer. Um, maybe that'll help us. Yeah. Uh, 3 to 13. And I will grant it the words to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand for the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky, in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their, their Lord was crucified. And, th- and those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell, and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
Okay, we're going to have to work on this a little bit. Uh, I think the first thing we need to do is get well in mind the facts of the case. David? Uh, when I was reading this, I, I I think it would be better if, well, I don't know about better, but like, when it he, when I'm reading this, it sounds like the whoever's showing him this is like, I mean, they're showing him something, and we're all, we, all we can do is read, and here is the olive tree. I mean, I guess John was seeing an olive tree, or someone was showing him this, but... It's kind of hard to understand it when you can't... It's like listening to someone explaining... Well, I was in this candy factory, like, for a tour, and they were showing all the machines work and stuff. It's like listening to the people saying it, but not being able to see any of the machines or what they're talking about. It takes more work. I think we're going to have to look at it more. We're going to have to uh, concentrate on it more. But I think it is quite uh, accessible, at least seeing what he's saying. You've got to kind of distinguish the career, the stages in the career of these two witnesses. You've got uh, the first stage. In verse 3, what do they do? They prophesy for how long? Yeah, 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, during this time, what happens if somebody wants to harm them? Yeah, they can they can bring fire to devour their enemies. Kind of reminds you of Second Kings one. You know uh, they have power to keep it from raining. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. They have power to strike the earth with plagues. They have power powers over the heavens, the waters, and the earth. You might compare the first four bowls and the first four trumpets that affect the heavens, the earth, and the waters. Uh, So they have great powers to keep their enemies at bay during this period of time. Now the fact that there are two witnesses would mean we've got a quorum. You've got to have at least two witnesses in God's law in the Old Testament uh, to establish something. We've already seen some witness concepts in the book. We've seen the idea of of testimony. Um, You know, John, was in Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus in one nine. Got the souls underneath the altar in six nine, who were there because of the testimony they had maintained. Now you've got these two witnesses prophesying in sackcloth for twelve hundred sixty days. That's stage one. So stage one of their career, the period of their prophesying. In stage two, starting in verse seven, what happens to them? Yes. Uh, who kills them? The beast that comes up out of the abyss. We haven't actually been introduced. We will be later. But the beast that comes out of, up out of the abyss overcomes and kills them. When does he do that? Yes. Not until they had finished their testimony. I say that means the beast is not in charge of this. God is, and he doesn't let them be killed until they finish their mission. But then the beast out of the abyss makes more with them and kills them. And their bodies lie in the street of the great city. It's a lot in Revelation of the battle between two cities. We'll talk more about that if we get a chance later on in the book. Uh, the This city was called later Babylon, but here it's depicted as being Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of the conglomeration of all the wickedness in the world. And, uh, well... The fact that the dead bodies lie in the street of the city means they aren't what? They aren't. They aren't buried. So it's a disgrace. And how do the people in the world feel? Oh man, this is Christmas all over again. They start giving presents to each other. They're celebrating. This is wonderful. I gather they didn't like these two witnesses very well. wonder why. There ever any time wicked people don't like righteous people preaching very much? Uh, so they, they don't care for them, and so they're just, uh, you know, gleeful at their demise. However, this period of their death was relatively short. How long did it last? Compare three and a half years for the period of their prophesying. This was quite short. What, what was the next period? What happens after the three and a half days? Yeah, God brings them back to life. The period of their resurrection 
They're brought back to life, scares everybody to death on the earth, and they're taken up to heaven. And, uh, you know, the celebration of the earthlings was a little premature. (laughs) You know, they are brought back to life, they are exalted, and the great city, a tenth of it falls in an earthquake, 7,000 killed, and the rest are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. So, we've got these two witnesses, the period of their prophesying, three and a half years, their death, three and a half days, and now their triumphal resurrection. Any comparison here to Jesus? Definitely. Definitely. Jesus was the faithful witness. 1-5-3-14. He died three days and he was raised. So I think definitely these two witnesses are replicating Jesus' career. But, what's the uh, $64,000 question? And... Who are the two witnesses? That's my question. You know, David? Uh, I don't know. You're saying that this looks like Jesus and maybe Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Yeah, good guess, but I don't think so. Let's look at some things that might help us decide who these two witnesses are. Uh, The first thing is he does tell us, verse 4, so the, the two olive trees and the two lampstands, that solves that, doesn't it? And go on. It does, to Zechariah 4, it does do that. Zechariah had the question, who are they? Yes. Well, the Lord thought he did. They're the two anointed ones from Zechariah. Um, the 1260 days is significant. Because that's the time period of the persecution of God's people. And uh, it's also significant, we're not saying everything yet, we're just kind of trying to put some things before you. In in 11.7, the beast makes war with them, overcomes them, and kills them. Look at 13.7. It was given to him, the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Yeah, that's helpful, isn't it? Yeah. Who does the beast make war with and overcome? The saints. Who were the lampstands? The churches. Who are the olive trees? I say the two olive trees in Zechariah 4 represent the kingship and the priesthood. Jesus and his people who are kings and priests. So I think that brings us back to God's people ultimately. You've also got Romans 11 that portrays God's people as an olive tree with various olive branches. So I really think these two witnesses represent the people of God. And for three and a half years, they powerfully prophesy even though they're persecuted. And then the forces of persecution kill them. And it pretty much looks like the people of God have gone down the tubes. It's over. That doesn't last long. God brings them back to life. God transforms apparent defeat into victory. He has a habit of doing that. And so that uh, this is saying to God's people, look. Don't worry about the persecution. For the 1260 days, you've got the ability to hold your enemies at bay. And when they kill you, it'll just be a three and a half day thing before God brings your cause back to life. I would cite the resurrection of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37 as another concept of the resurrection of the cause. uh, Where God's... Uh, kingdom revives by his power and even by his breathing the breath of life into those uh, skeletons. And uh, so that what we are seeing in both of these pictures is that God's people are going to be persecuted but taken care of by him. And uh, for that for that period of time, it's you know there's, there's going to be persecution. The outer court's going to be trampled underfoot. They're going to be prophesying in sackcloth. It's going to culminate in the beast killing them. But it's going to really culminate three and a half days later when God brings life back into them and triumphs over that persecution. Comments and questions? I got all sorts of things. Eric? Well, I got some strange thoughts going on in my head. Uh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> because the original question was, who are these two witnesses? And my first thought was, the prophets from the Old Testament and the prophets from the New Testament. And when I started working with that, I went back to the whole uh, verse 1 and 2. 
And it looks to me, and I, I'm probably totally wrong, this looks like a history of God's people. Because he had the Jews who were separate, and he protected them. And he had the prophets who were supposed to be telling the people, here's what you need to do, but they didn't listen to it. And then you get to the point where Jesus comes, Jesus is killed, and they're all excited, and he's raised from the dead. And in the very end, everyone who believes repents and is saved. And maybe I'm just being totally simplistic. I think it might be out of the context. I think we have to kind of see it in the light of the context. But we can think about that. Patty? Um, is the Lord of the Earth um, Satan? Uh, no. I think God. God is the Lord. Yes. Verse 4. And um, the city, is that Jerusalem? Well, I think it's the world city. I think it's the city that's opposed to God's people. I don't think you can specifically identify it just with one city. I think it's Babylon later on in the book, which represents anti-God forces. Here he says, it's Sodom. You know, it's Egypt. It's where also their Lord was crucified. It's really, you know, it's many different cities because of their role in wickedness. But it really represents the city that's opposed to God's city, which is New Jerusalem. Really, I'm giving away what I probably won't get to anyway, um, there is a huge sub-theme, especially from chapter 12 on, and super especially from chapter 17 on, that is really the two women cities in contrast. You've got God's woman, the bride, New Jerusalem, versus the devil's woman, the prostitute, Babylon, And, oh my, there is so much in the contrast between those two. I think this is kind of, you know, we're sort of seeing this devil city a little before she's actually introduced to us in chapter 17. Yes, Scott. Uh, You know, when it comes to two witnesses, what I made comment earlier, it's almost like this isn't somebody new. It's somebody that John knows. Somebody that's already appeared in the story. And that fits in exactly, I think, with Christian. Because Christian's already... I mean, that's what it's about. Right. So it isn't like the scene suddenly changes and we've got two new people there. The, the, just the way that it, it's introduced to me supports the idea that it's, it's the Christians. It's the ones that have been there all the time. Absolutely. And the fact that the lampstands were previously specifically identified as the churches makes it pretty hard to avoid something that way uh, when he says what he does in verse 4. Yes. And, and, you know, why two instead of one? Well, you know, you, you go back to the Proverbs. Two are better than one, a two-fold cord. And especially uh, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everyone yeah. will be established. Always took at least two witnesses. Right. Right. So we've got a quorum of witnesses here. Patty. Um, was this written after the destruction of Jerusalem? Uh, that's a debated issue. <laughs> For me, it makes no difference. I think yes, but it's not important from my perspective whether it was or wasn't. For some people, it is important. So, Yes? Um, and, and you may have addressed this earlier, and I apologize, but no do, you, do you think the, um, the audience for whom this was intended, which I take to be first century Christians, do you think they were able to understand this maybe with providential, you know, with providential support through the Holy Spirit, or did they were they just able to, after puzzling over this, be able to make the connections? Of course, they had a richer symbology or whatever, maybe played a bigger role or, or a more prominent role. So maybe some of the understanding was easier unaided by. Yeah, I'm not of the opinion that they needed the Holy Spirit's special involvement for them to be able to understand it. I do think that he does expect great familiarity with figures and so forth from the Old Testament prophets. I also think that they may not have understood all of it. I mean, what about Second Peter 3? Where Peter says, you know, there were some things that Paul wrote that were hard to be understood. (laughs) You know, I mean, I suspect they puzzled over some things. Um, uh, I mean, there's the the meat of the word that, you know, you're not going to understand as easily. 
but I suspect they could do what we're doing. We may not understand every detail absolutely, but I don't think we've done too bad. You know, I mean, I think we're getting the gist of this. We're thinking about Old Testament passages that relate. We're trying to follow through in context. We've got some question marks here, there, and yonder. But I think we're pretty, I think we're pretty good with the general idea of what's going on. They would have had at least as much information as we would have had about that, it seems to me. Perhaps a little bit more understanding of the immediate context they were living in. That would have helped them some. Um, so, I, I don't know. I don't think they probably needed uh, some special uh, help from the Holy Spirit in this. I think they could have done the same thing we're doing. Yes, and, and also, if you're one of these seven churches reading this, you know your lampstand mentions two lampstands here. You're not going to say, oh, we're, we're not one of those, it's one of the other. <laughs> That's Everybody right. Everybody is going to think they're one of these lampstands. Sure. And so, and I think it applies to all of them. I agree. So the, the number really kind of is irrelevant also. I agree. <laughs> good comments, good discussion. Tough passage, but... You know, I think that's the right direction for us to go with this, even if there's some details that are a little, you know, unusual for us. I mean, you have the advantage that now we have seen the interlude between Seal 6 and 7, the, the situation of God's people in view of God's wrath. The interlude between Trumpet 6 and 7, the situation of God's people in view of the persecution. I feel pretty good about it seeing those as kind of parallel. Both of them are two basic scenes. And now we're ready for the seventh trumpet, which should complete the seventh seal. Anything you want to say through 11, uh, well, 12? Just one more thing. Sure. And, uh, verse 11 in chapter 10, says, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And uh, that's sort of mentioned again in chapter 11, verse 9, and then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. And it sounds like all the people of the world, this is yes. maybe not so much to one time and one place. This is God's people. And as all the people of the world see God's people. Okay. Other thoughts? Well, look at what he said in 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly, which finally brings us back around to we've completed the, the, the second woe trumpet, trumpet number six, and now we're ready for the final trumpet, which is the third woe trumpet. And, uh, man, you wonder what this will be like. Remember that fifth and sixth trumpet, the demonic locusts and the... Uh, you know, fire-breathing uh, horses. I mean, this could be something. Verses uh, 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Alright. Not really what we might have expected. Uh, the question mark may be why. Uh, the seventh trumpet sounds, and what do we find out? Victory. God's kingdom beats the world's kingdom, and he reigns forever and ever. Now, I'm not sure the best way to look at this, but I'll give you a thought. Is this perhaps a way of summarizing the seventh trumpet and saying, in the seventh trumpet we have the victory of God 
over these opposing forces. But rather than seeing immediately the details and the impact on the earth, what does John see and hear? Well, he sees the chorus of celebration and thanksgiving in heaven. He sees the 24 elders worshiping God and praising Him for the victory that He gained. We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, talk about that in a minute, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. You know, God gained the victory. He brings His wrath down upon the nations. He judges the dead. He rewards His servants and saints and those who fear Him. And He destroys those who destroy. So God wins this victory. He brings His power to prevail against those who are putting the martyrs underneath the altar. And, uh, you know, He, he, he wins. Uh, and, and so it, will, it says... In 17, who are and who were, but not who is to come. Because now, in the context of the book, he's come and brought judgment upon those who are persecuting the Christians. So the who is to come is really not relevant. Uh, Now, he's actually come and he's dealt with them. So, I'm willing at the moment to see this as kind of the headline and the, the summary of the victory. And and really, I think probably one of the most significant questions for understanding the book is trying to figure out how to fit these chunks together. What do we do right here? There's several ways to conceptualize this, and I'm not sure the best way. What I'm suggesting right now is that we've got the headline. We've got the summary, but now we're going to blow that up and start seeing the details of the victory, kind of from a different perspective. Now, that's one way to look at it. It's possible to look at chapter 11, the seventh trumpet, is just saying, that's, he just won, and, and then say we're just backing off in chapter 12 and coming at it from another camera angle looking at the same thing differently. But I'm for the moment suggesting, let's see this as the summary, and let's take chapter 12 and following as giving the details fleshing out that summary. Um, Definitely one of the most significant questions is, do you take chapter 12 and following as being sort of um, talking about the same thing, or is this something that comes after that? I'm saying it's talking about the same thing. I'm saying that we, in some sense, we're either expanding on the victory or, or, or we're backing up and taking another camera angle on it. I really think we have one main point in Revelation and we continue elaborating on that from different angles and in different ways. More of a recapitulationist view and not a consecutive event sort of view. So, that's where I'm at with this, and that's probably the simplest way for me to take this, as we're just, we're seeing the summary, then we'll start in chapter 12, and detail how that all happened. Jason. Something I missed, just along the lines is, whenever we got to the seventh seal, as you saw it expand a little bit. Yes. I take this as the same thing. Okay. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you know, God could write this any way he wants. I mean, bottom line, I think God could have said, you know, book of Revelation, Christ win, wins, and so do his people. Period. But it's so much more vivid, moving, motivating, and helpful when he gives so many details. He's just not ready to finish the story yet. We need to see it more. We need to get more impact. We need to get more insight. We need to be moved more by this. And thank God. Yeah, it's just exactly, you know, like this. I mean, what do they do when, I don't watch professional anything, but what do they do when whoever the great professional ball player is at the moment 
you know, does this incredible, spectacular body control, super double reverse layup, you know, guarded by 20 defenders. You know, what are we going to do with that? Well, we're going to see that 500 times, all on Sports Center and whatever, from every conceivable camera angle, from the top, from the bottom, from all sides. We're going to analyze it, we're going to slow mo it, we're going to do everything, because that's so spectacular, we've just got to, you know, see all angles of it. That's what this is. This victory of God is so spectacular. We can't let this go yet. Yeah. I was thinking about history presented sort of that same way, where you for example, hear about some figure that really impresses you, and I'm just going to throw out Martin Luther King. And so you kind of go, the very capital version is, you know, he lived, he gave some great speeches, he was assassinated and died. Okay, ordinary story on the surface, I mean, not obviously not an ordinary sur- story on the surface, but it doesn't really pull at the heart. Okay, but now let's look at it. He grew in a poor neighborhood and this and that, and afterwards, boy, there's a little tear coming to your eye, and you're kind of going, wow. Maybe, is that perhaps another way to say what you just said? Yes, it is. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you can give a bottom line, but it doesn't mean as much as when you flesh it out with details that are moving and gripping and a picture that really captivates you. Well, on that line of thought, the Bible already does that in the Old Testament. I mean, Moses pretty much tells what happened, and you go on, and someone else tells. I mean, they tell the exact same story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, um, verses fifteen through nineteen. When I read that, I don't see much of a woe there. You know. Yeah. The woe comes in the following. You know. Yeah. Right. So, so I think it fits in with the the context also. And, you know, like people said, we see that with movies. How many movies have you seen where they start, you know, what is it? It's a wonderful life. you get Joseph talking to, what is it, Clarence or whatever, you know. Well, i got to show you the whole story about this man's life before you see how that fits. Right, exactly. You know, they show you a little bit of the end. Yeah. And then they show you the rest of the movie. Okay, and that's all. And it's, a, yeah. I think, it's very similar. Yeah, I agree. Good point. Yes. Um, I also hear what it said, talks about when, at the end of 11, when it's just first sounded. To us, it's not a low. It's awesome. It's amazing. But to the wicked people of the world, it is a Yes. Because it's their final judgment. It's their final death. But to us, it's life. Absolutely. Yes, very much so. God's judgments can be seen from two entirely different perspectives. They're either terrible or wonderful. Katie. Very good. Amen. Other thoughts? David. You mentioned rather than, than doing the Reader's Digest version, you know, it goes into this elaborate detail. That again ties it in with the Old Testament scriptures. enhances the meaning of it. You know, they're familiar with that, and that's how God brought all this about to begin with. Amen. Other thoughts? I mean, the bottom line in this book, as in every other book in the Bible, this glorifies God. God is the main character in the Bible. He is the main focus. And every book in the Bible ultimately contributes to understanding God and to glorifying Him. I was hoping no one would ask. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> David. I mean, just speculation. When I was reading that, it mentions the temple, which, of course, the dwelling place of God, the Ark of the Covenant, is where the law was kept. Yeah, I, yeah that's good. Uh, it's also I'm open to everything. It's also the very presence of God in the tabernacle. And it may be 
in some senses that verse 19 is transitional into chapter 12. I'm just a little, I'm still trying to sort out verse 19, so. Patty. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but that's what would lead them into battle. That's that showed them that God was fighting the war. That's a good point. I agree. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the point. All right. I think this would be a good juncture to take a break. Chapter twelve is awesome. I love chapter twelve. But why don't we take a break and then work for at least, you know, another hour or a little bit, uh, hour and a little bit, and then we'll stop. So uh, uh, you can, we'll take a break and come back.